Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to episode 176 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you so much for joining me today for today's story from London. And it shows how one seemingly minor incident can have huge repercussions, destroying many lives for years to come. But before we begin, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new members of this exclusive club. That's Louise Ross and Izzy Wolford Lim. Thank you so much for joining us. And really exciting news, I use the term loosely, for Patreon supporters, is that from today, I'll be setting up a Facebook group exclusively for Patreon supporters. So we can have much more intimate chat and give you lots more scope to ask me questions and talk amongst ourselves about UK true crime. So let's take a look at the music we were listening to at the time of today's show. Lady Gaga topped the UK and US charts with Just Dance. And in Australia, oh my really, top of the album charts were the Kings of Tedium with Only By The Night. Joyful. It didn't get much better in February when they were knocked off the top spot by Lily Allen with It's Not Me, It's You. Quite. Let's race on to the news this month. 61 people died in a nightclub fire in Bangkok. Phil Taylor, with a 7-1 victory in the final over Dutchman Raymond von Barneveld, won his 12th BDC World Darts title. What a legend the power was. And it was this month that Chesley Sullenberger landed US Airways Flight 1549 on the Hudson River shortly after takeoff from New York. All passengers and crew members amazingly survived in what became known as the Miracle on the Hudson. And this month saw Barack Obama inaugurated as the 44th President of the United States of America. In UK true crime news, Karen Matthews and Michael Donovan were sentenced to eight years in prison for the kidnap of Shannon Matthews, having held her captive in Donovan's flat in Dewsbury as part of a bid to claim £50,000 for her safe return after reporting her missing to the police. One of those cases where words kind of fail us, isn't it? Did you guess the month of the year? January 2009. You know, I reckon this totally new guess the year stuff could one day catch on with radio stations. What do you think? Okay, so let's get on to today's story from North London. Did you see that last month Home Secretary Prissy Patel announced a formal inquiry into the shooting of 28-year-old Jermaine Baker from Tottenham, North London? Jermaine was killed in December 2015 by an armed Met Police officer and the inquiry would examine the circumstances around just what happened and act as the inquest into his death. His family and friends have fought hard for justice for Jermaine and his mum, Margaret Smith, although welcoming the inquiry, said, We first saw the coroner on the 22nd of December 2015. I can't believe that more than four years later we're still waiting. The key thing we want for the inquiry is the truth, the truth, the truth. 
In the podcast this week and next, we will examine what we know about Germain's death. But before we get there, we need to head way back to events in London in 2009. The Manor Club is on the Seven Sisters Road in Finsbury Park, North London. In the shadow of the Emirates Stadium, home to Arsenal Football Club, it's a wonderfully diverse part of London, reflecting the true nature of the city. Finsbury Park itself was used as a meeting place for pacifists during World War I, and now hosts a number of open-air concerts. I saw the Queens of the Stone Age there a couple of years ago. The music was great, but queuing an hour for drinks, less so. It was on the 24th of January 2009, when a seemingly innocent disturbance inside the Manor Club had a knock-on effect leading to several murders and violent incidents across London and southern Turkey. Kemal Armagan, a feared violent man who led a gang known as the Hackney Bombers, was slapped by a member of the rival gang known as Tottenham Boys. Although just a slap to you or me, this was seen as a humiliating loss of face suffered by Armagan, and he immediately vowed to take revenge, shouting that he was going to kill those who had attacked him. But nobody could quite have foreseen just what an orgy of violence would follow from these Turkish gangs. Below the surface of this dispute between the two gangs was, you won't be surprised to hear, drugs and money. Specifically, the lucrative heroin trade from Turkey into the UK and the criminality around this. This trade was once dominated by a Turkish man, Abdullah Beybasan, until his arrest and subsequent jailing. Writing in the Independent newspaper, Tony Thompson describes what happened when police raided his house. I quote, When police tried to enter the nondescript terraced house in Green Lane's northeast London, they soon realised it was no ordinary family home. The front door was so well fortified the officers had to smash a hole in the wall, break down two heavy metal gates and knock through a triple glazed window to get in. Upstairs they broke through a soundproof four inch thick door and found a torture chamber. Two large black metal hooks had been screwed into the ceiling and wired to the mains. Victims would be suspended and beaten between electric shocks. They had made the mistake of crossing Abdullah Bay Basin. Despite being wheelchair-bound since the mid-1980s, the 45-year-old father of one headed a Kurdish and Turkish crime syndicate and was considered to be one of Britain's most powerful gangsters. He coordinated a massive drug-smuggling ring ran extortion rackets and forced other criminals to pay him a tax for permission to operate. He is linked to more than a dozen brutal murders. He was known as Uncle and the Godfather of Green Lanes. He came to London from Turkey in 1997 to claim asylum and quickly set about recruiting a gang of young, hungry Kurds known as the Bombers. Detectives managed to install cameras into his office and the scenes they recorded were extraordinary. In addition to horrific violence and threats, Thompson spoke to those who knew him and one said the following. People were clearly in awe of him. Bay Basin would turn up two or three times a week. People would come and kiss his hand. When he spoke, it would be in a soft whisper so only the people closest to him could hear. Senior detectives later commented that what they were watching was like a scene from The Godfather. A lot of his power came from his brother, Hussein, better known as the Emperor, or eventually, Europe's Pablo Escobar. 
He built a crime empire that began with black market cigarettes in Istanbul and then moved on to trafficking hashish and heroin into Europe. This enabled him to invest in a wide variety of business interests in the UK, which included a foreign exchange bureau and hotels, as well as owning a number of businesses in the south of Turkey. But in 1984, the emperor was arrested with heroin in London and sentenced to 12 years in prison. Just three years into his sentence, he was moved to Turkey and soon released. Rumours swirled about his contacts at a high level in Turkey to facilitate this move to that country and his quicker release than expected. Perish the thought that senior officials were corrupted. Surely not. But it wasn't long until he was again facing being in court, this time in Amsterdam. The emperor got sentenced to life after being convicted of murder, kidnapping and drug smuggling. So however golden his network was, there was to be no early release on this occasion. This allowed his brother, Abdullah, to take over a lot of his business and make himself an even more powerful figure in the process. In his article in the Independent newspaper, Thompson said that alongside running his criminal business, Abdullah was also an informant for customs and excise, which gave him the business advantage of pretty much being protected by the authorities, whilst also feeding information to cause his rivals major issues. Apparently, it was not uncommon for gangsters to have this arrangement, but it is, I imagine, such a fine line to tread on both sides. But by 2006, Abdullah was facing charges in a UK court. To give you just an idea of the massive scale of his operations at this time, by then, police reckoned his criminal empire was responsible for a whopping 90% of Britain's heroin trade, as well as making money from extortion, blackmail and other related activities. With Abdullah off the streets, it was hoped that the Turkish and Kurdish communities in North London could return to a more peaceful way of life. But instead, as you may expect, in the gap left by Abdullah, a variety of people tried to muscle into the gap he left behind. Abdullah's gang tried to establish their supremacy in the new pecking order, and his rivals, for so long kept down by the size of Abdullah's influence, also tried to establish their place in the vacuum left behind. The result was, as you would expect, uncertainty, a number of new players, and inevitably, the result was increasing violence. So much so that by 2009, the Met's then commander for North London, Steve Kavanagh, said that the Abdullah Bay Basin network had given way to something much more chaotic, leading to levels of violence that are shocking. And that was before the slap in the snooker hall in Finsbury Park, which led to the events we are covering today. Okay, let's get back to it after that snooker club incident. After this, there were a variety of tit-for-tat minor attacks and non-fatal shootings. But this escalated in March 2009, when two balaclava-clad gunmen burst into the E5 Social Club in Upper Clapton Road, which was known Hackney Bombers' territory, and they opened fire. No one was hurt, but it didn't take long for Kemal Armagan to retaliate. One of the men involved in the incident at the snooker club was called Mehmet Sempalet, and he worked at the Euro Food and Wine Store in nearby Hornsey Road. And just hours after the attack at the E5 Social Club, a masked gunman burst into this shop firing four rounds from a 9mm semi-automatic pistol. 
the target was Mehmet, but he wasn't there. The cashier, 50-year-old Ahmet Pytak, was killed at the scene after being hit in the stomach and his 21-year-old son, Hussein, incurred serious leg injuries to his thigh in the attack. It later emerged that Ahmet, who worked at the shop, was entirely innocent of any involvement in the violent feud. The gunman had shot the wrong men rather than their target, Mehmet Sampalit. Detective Inspector Joe Daly of the Homicide and Serious Crime Command said, Mr Pytak's death was a tragic and senseless loss of life, which has devastated a family. Ahmet, a father of three, worked at the store part-time, and his son had come to help him shut the store that evening. It was reported that one witness who didn't want to be named said that he saw the severely wounded Heisen crying as he watched his dad die in front of him. And another neighbour who runs a kebab shop next door said, I saw the two guys drive off. I found Ahmet on the floor. There was quite a lot of blood. Tragically, Ahmet did not live to see his first grandchild. His daughter, Elif, gave birth to Isla not long after the murder. And her brother spent months in a wheelchair recovering from his severe leg injury and he was very fortunate not to die in the shooting and slowly started to make a recovery. His sister Elef said, There was no reason why anyone would want to harm them. The whole family is absolutely devastated by what's happened and nothing feels the same anymore. The killer, Ricardo Dwyer, had been hired by the Hackney bombers for the murder, but made that mistake of shooting the wrong target. As the police looked for the killers, 31-year-old Michael James was rounded up first. He had driven the motorbike which had taken Dwyer to the shop. His bike was recovered from the River Lee and quickly traced to him as there were only 112 of the black and red Benali TNT 1130cc bikes in the UK and just eight in London. At a push, I think even South Yorkshire police may have figured this one out. At his trial, Michael James pleaded not guilty claiming he was unaware that his passenger was a hitman. He told how he believed they were going to steal a drugs cachet from the shop and had no idea that his pillion passenger was armed with a gun. The jury didn't believe him and he was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Dwyer was later convicted due to his DNA being found on a balaclava worn during the attack and dumped. At his trial, the court also heard a number of calls from mobiles between Michael James who'd already been convicted of murder over the attack, Dwyer and Kemal Armagan, the leader of the Hackney Bombers, on the night of the attack. Dwyer was sent down for 28 years. Judge Anthony Morris called it a particularly bloodthirsty feud and said the warring gangs had turned North London into a battleground. Both father and son found themselves to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and had nothing whatsoever to do with this terrible feud which is still going on and makes this part of London such a dangerous place to go, he said. And in a statement, Armit's daughter, Elif, said, Life will never be or mean the same to us. It has been over four years since the incident, but we still feel the pain very deeply and always will. Our hope and happiness has been snatched away from us. Our dad was a wonderful person. He was always a happy person and never complained about anything. Since Dad has passed away, we have not been the same. 
It wasn't just our dad's life that was ruined, but all four of our lives. Every day, we wished this was all a nightmare and we would wake up with our dad next to us. Following the shooting, Kemal Armagan was believed to have fled the country. But of course, this pointless murder wasn't the end of it. And one significant shooting was in September 2009, when a senior member of the Tottenham boys, Izzet Erin, was shot. And then just a few days later, at 4.10pm, on the 2nd of October 2009, Izzet Erin's friend and fellow Tottenham boy Octay Ebralisi was murdered as he drove through Tottenham. For Octay, who ran a pound shop in Tottenham, it was just a normal journey on a normal day. His girlfriend and five-year-old son were also in the car as they sat back in his silver-grey Range Rover on the Great Cambridge Road, unaware that a powerful motorbike was approaching. Then as they sat at traffic lights, shots blasted out, followed by the terrible sound of Octay's son crying out, My daddy, my daddy. After being shot, Octay managed to get out of his car and stagger down the road before returning to the vehicle and collapsing in the street. He was rushed to hospital, but tragically he died an hour later. A family friend was quoted as saying that Octay had been a member of the Tottenham Boys gang for at least seven years, and everyone knew that the attack was due to his membership of the gang. This person added, Everyone knew what he was doing, but we didn't know it was going to come to this. We told him a million times to stop, but he didn't want to know. His brother, Okan, said the killings must have been planned for days, and called on police to act or more killings would happen. He described his brother as lovely, caring person, and said his parents, Ali 53 and Sultan 51, were in a terrible state over the death. He added, he was only 23. If the police don't stop these people, it could happen to anyone. And revenge for the Tottenham boys came swiftly. Just three days later, 21-year-old Kem Dusgan, he was playing pool with his friends in the Clacton FC club, a Turkish social club in Upper Clacton Road. It was 10.50pm. People inside the club became aware that something was happening at the entrance and Kem headed over to investigate. Two hooded men had come through the airlock secure doors and when Kem came face to face with the two men, one opened fire, shooting 11 bullets through his head, torso, arms and legs. Ballistics experts later estimated that the weapon was closer than 30 centimetres from Kem's head when it was fired. Kem, who lived with his family in Islington, North London, and worked as a sales assistant in a clothes shop in Croydon, lost his life at the club. He was just 21, and again an innocent man not involved in the gang scene at all. 28-year-old Blaise Duncula was later found guilty of murder, along with three other men who helped plan the murder. This included 24-year-old Yusuf Arslan, who was shown from his mobile phone records, to have called the brother of Octay immediately before and after the murder, when he reported that Octay's death a few days earlier had been avenged. 28-year-old Blaze was already serving an indefinite jail term after kidnapping a man later tortured to death on the orders of a gang boss known only as Reds. And Arslan was also already serving an indefinite sentence for attempted murder and other offences after trying to shoot a gang rival in the street with a submachine gun in Tottenham a week before Kem's killing. The court heard that although Arslan wasn't present at the attack, 
he was at a Council of War meeting to plan it three days earlier. Phone records and CCTV pinpointed Lankula and his accomplices in the vicinity of the social club in the minutes before the shooting. Other security cameras picked him up and another man approaching the club, the door being held open and shots being fired. He was further linked to the scene by a string of other evidence, including CCTV images of a distinctive pair of trainers he wore during the shooting, and at a shop he frequented in Tottenham High Road. He'd also been captured on CCTV on the Broadwater Farm Estate, wearing a bulky hooded jacket, similar to that worn by the gunman shortly before the shooting. The investigating officer, Detective Sergeant Simon Franklin, said, The victim was simply enjoying a night out with his friends when he went to investigate the disturbance. Sadly, this decision cost him his life, as he became unwittingly caught up in a bitter and violent rivalry between two Turkish gangs operating in the area. This has been a long and complex investigation linked to several other crimes, and I'm pleased at today's convictions. This will send a clear message that the streets of London cannot be ruled by fear and violence, that those who commit such offences and hide behind gangs will be brought to justice. In reaction to this case, the Observer newspaper quoted Suleiman Ergun, formerly one of Britain's most prominent Turkish criminals, who at the age of 21 became the world's third biggest heroin dealer before being jailed for 14 years. He said, and I quote, that the trade in heroin, traditionally controlled in London by Turkish organised criminals, remains as rife as ever. He said, you got the Kurds bringing it over, 10, 15, 20 kilos at a time, and these youngsters are buying it off them and selling it on the street. And that's where the war is coming from. And it was further reported that for detectives, this was the final straw in the battle between them and the gangs. I quote the observer again. For Scotland Yard's senior command, Dusgan's death was the final straw. Something had to give, something drastic was required to tackle the vortex of violence. The decision was taken for the first time that officers armed with Heckler and Cox semi-automatic submachine guns would be deployed on routine patrol on London streets. They could also have fast motorbikes at their disposal. The decision, ratified in a recent meeting between Met Borough commanders and CO19 senior officers, had followed months of anxious reports from community leaders that their areas were under siege and concerns among senior officers that they risked losing control. But as we will hear in the second and concluding part of this story next week, the violence didn't subside at all. In fact, the situation continued to deteriorate. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. To discuss this story or any aspect of UK true crime, please head to the UK True Crime Facebook group and join almost 25,000 of us true crime fans discussing all aspects of UK true crime. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime, where you will find almost 40 bonus episodes and loads more exclusive content, and of course, be able to access the patron-only Facebook group. And don't worry, because the bonus episodes have the same ropey quality as the weekly podcast, what more could you want? You know it makes sense, so please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. That is all for me, so until we speak again next time, have a great week. I'm off to do my singular piece of exercise with Buckley and Dizzy Rascal, 
who have both now managed to realise they can reach the sheep in the field opposite if they cross the river at the bottom of our garden at the lowest point. These Dalmatians really do keep us on our toes. Anyway, do your best to enjoy your time in lockdown. Please do take it easy, stay safe, and most of all, stay classy. Cheerio. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.